1: Hey everyone, Griffin Schiller here back with another interview and this time I had the privilege to speak with 50-50 and The Night Before director Jonathan Levine about his latest romantic comedy Longshot starring Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. We had a fantastic conversation about his new film touching on topics such as how he went about crafting a political satire as defined by the Trump era, his working relationship with Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen, how much of the comedy in Longshot was improvised and much more john is a genuine guy and a talented filmmaker and i know you'll get a sense of that during this interview so without further ado my conversation with jonathan levine so i got to see this film uh at south by southwest when you premiered it and i absolutely oh, loved it i i thought you i, I thought it was probably the biggest crowd pleaser of the festival. I'd never seen an audience that just like engaged and, you know, electric while watching the film. And I think, you know, you made some interesting statements on the the current uh you know, status of the political division in our country and whatnot. And so I wanna get into a little bit of that first of all. So um I I have
0: not. I have not talked that much about it. So really, um, okay. Well, I mean, you know, sorry. Go ahead and let's start with the question. Okay, (laughs) no, no problem.
1: Whatever. There's a lot of comedy being made, uh, primarily parody on television about you know the Trump administration, but Longshot feels like the first real political satire of the climate as defined by the Trump era. So how do you craft a political comedy about this political moment that feels thoughtful and sincere and doesn't fall into parodying the, you know, the inherent absurdity of what's going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, we had a, a, a few kind of built-in advantages and disadvantages. When, when, when Dan Sterling first wrote the script, um, it was written in the Obama era. It was much oh, more akin to the America the American president or something like that it was much more uh-huh. of a, you know, um it was much more it, it was able to have a little bit more sweetness and um, and and sort of neutrality in its political worldview. Um, the you know, it was much more of a kind of sorcony world um mm. where everyone was, idealistic and everyone kind of wanted to do the right thing and they were just you know struggling to do it when trump was elected president uh we realized obviously that we needed to make some changes um but what we didn't want to do is you know do it in a way that um you know i I think so many there's so much content right now that is um about this administration there's so much you know late night Mm -hmm. shows and Saturday Night Live and stuff like that, and we just wanted to and and even you know, if you go on Twitter, it's really hard to kind of navigate without getting incredibly angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, I think anger and vitriol was like <clears throat> was something we really wanted to avoid because it wouldn't allow us. those two things couldn't coexist. We could not we could not have something that was so um angry about the state of the world and yet also, Sweet and romantic. Mm. Um, And to us, the most important thing um, was to be sweet and romantic. This is, after all, a fairy tale at its heart. But at the same time, we did not want, you know, we we needed to kind of (laughs) metabolize the reality that we lived in and we needed it to be reflected in, in this movie. We just really didn't want it to be about anger. And so, you know, what we did find was that there was a lot of fodder for satire. In the existence of, of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, and it and it forced us to sort of examine things in a in a in a way where you know like our president, our the character of our president went from you know when Seth had this idea that he should be a former <laughs> TV star, which I thought really kind of uh, uh, cracked it for us. It was like we could comment on you know the state of the presidency and and the appeal and the fact that someone who is Let's call it completely unqualified, can become president mm-hmm. um, is obviously something that we can use to our comedic advantage in this um in this situation. And it's like you know, what I did like about it was it's not just Donald Trump. like when you look at it, like this guy has kind of the the sort of TV and film charisma of Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. or the sort of dumb sweetness of George W. Bush. You know, this guy is not a supervillain in our movie.
2: Yeah. Um, even yeah. though he
0: is not the most you know, even though he's he's certainly a a complicated character. Sure. Um so anyway, point point being, like we were able to sort of take what really at at first threw us for a loop and sort of turn it into something that really worked in our favor. Um and the key to doing that was was sort of just trying to be as analytical as possible about the state of things and to show, of course, you know, we're trying to show that Charlize's character um, exists in a superficial world. And that's something I think we're much more interested in commenting on than the state of contemporary politics. There's so many people who do that so well. Um, you know, we're not going to compete with Colbert on that. We're not going to compete with John Oliver on that. And so I think that what we did want to say is, you know, look, this is someone who's fighting against a very superficial world and um, an electorate that's not always making the decisions that you would hope they would make and making decisions sometimes for reasons that, um, you know, not not always – we just kind of wanted to um, – we just kind of wanted to – examine this from the perspective of how it would impact charlize's character mm-hmm. um as a woman as a uh, you know as a celebrity as a and 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 that was something that I think in relief of that that's what' Bob's character, Bob Odenkirk's character, the president was able to was able to do for
1: us. That was one of the things that I that I loved about it is you could have easily gone for low hanging fruit, but instead you you took a more thoughtful approach to it. Um, you know, another accomplishment you guys kind of pull off is your ability to lighten the mood when you're bringing such tense subject matter, such as our political climate, to the forefront. Uh, right. how how do you ride that line between being a romantic comedy and a political satire for everyone, and also pushing the boundary? in a way that challenges the audience instead of alienating
0: them. Yeah, I mean, well, that was the hardest thing. And, and I think that um, for us, and I know it's kind of, it, it is hard for some people to hear it, but for us, the most important thing was sort of to, to remove ourselves from our current context, strangely, mm-hmm. and to think about a time when the, the debates between Republicans and Democrats and left and right were not as sharply drawn and and, and, there were, and it was more about ideals, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of trying to do that kind of Frank Capra thing where it's like there's things that all Americans can agree on, right? And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's a little tricky in this day and age because it gets so clouded in the fact that people are so divided. And, you know, um, but there are things we can all agree on that we, or there should be at least things we can all agree on that we want to reflect um in ourselves. And those are those are very often like kind of personal ideals and moral ideals. And they're not necessarily political ideals, although they probably should be, um, but they're not. And so that was, you know, if you look at Frank Capra, if you look at Billy Wilder, if you look at Lubitsch, for example, and these are the type of movies that I was going back to to just kind of to look at tone, you know, if you look at mm. "To Be or Not to Be," the the Lubitsch movie, which mm. is like set against the backdrop of World War II, they don't waste a lot of time complaining about Hitler. He's a way he is he's he is something that exists, and as as such, there's enough there's there's enough real estate to calibrate a tone that is sweet and funny, and yet also um, has some teeth you know yeah. um but its primary goal is not like we weren't making bucks you know its primary goal is not to you know illuminate injustices and 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 so it's not coming from that place but i think that that was really the way to find the oper- the, the the calibration of how these things can coexist but it was yeah. always first and foremost our goal like if you you know it, with with all this stuff and i've done this a few times now I don't know why I make life so hard for myself, but, <laughs> you know, zombie romance, ca- cancer comedy. Like, yeah. like you know, the, these, I, I, I sort of get off on the degree of difficulty of these things. And once you find a rule for yourself about how to approach it, it becomes um, a lot easier. And so our rule was always, you know, lead with heart, lead with romance, um, and let the characters, because... Dan and, and then Liz wrote these amazingly sharply drawn characters, um, let them sort of guide us. And, you know, the great thing about making these movies with Seth is you also have enough time in the day to fail. Um, You can, you you know, the stuff on our cutting room floor, uh, there's, there's enough for two movies that suck, you know? Um, So like, it's not to say that we get it right all the time, but in, in the rigor of trying things out, and in the sort of um, in, in, in the notion that everyone's on the same page and we're all going for the same thing and we're letting the characters lead and we're letting the heart lead, but we're also you know taking doing a take or two that that, that doesn't necessarily do that and just seeing what works and then cutting it. You know, no one has to see it if it doesn't work. <laughs> so um, it's just we we we've kind of like by this one we've kind of perfected the process. Um, so. It's, you know, to get these things to coexist, it definitely involves a lot of trial and error, and it involves failing a lot, and it also involves being very rigorous and methodical in the editing room.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, that that just gets me thinking, you know, because I was watching the film, I, I feel like there was probably a lot of improvisation on set, and you talked about, you know, letting the actors kind of play around a bit. Is that something that you kind of encourage and, and, and how much of the film and the, the comedic beats were improvised?
0: Well, we do a few things Um and, and my my feeling on all this has, has kind of evolved um it, over the last 10 years. You know, when I first did 50-50 with those guys, they pretty much introduced me to this style of filmmaking. Um On the whackness, you know, I would let actors kind of uh, do whatever they want every once in a while, but it never became you're not doing any of the dialogue from the scene, mm-hmm. which is what happens a lot um, on point gray movies. And, and I loved it. I just loved it. It was so freeing and Joseph Gordon-Levitt loved it. And, and, and it was just seemed like a new way of making movies. And we were using two cameras all the time. And, and then on the night before, um, we did it, but I didn't love it as much because what I found was, um, everyone was so funny. And that was a movie where comedy was like literally the number one priority. Oh yeah. For um, sure. So, so I, I would allow it to go on for longer and longer. And I would find myself sometimes sitting behind the monitor being like, what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> like, what's <laughs> happening? Like, yeah. I, I'm laughing because of course I'm going to laugh watching two very funny people just talk for five minutes. But like, okay, well, there goes my cool crane shot because like we were just talking for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And there goes, you know, it just, you, you there is a reality that your 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 time as a filmmaker is limited and every choice you make um, is, you know, is you're, you're not just choosing to do something, you're choosing not to do something else. Mm-hmm. So on um, that movie, I think when, when coming into this movie, um, you know, a lot of our references were 80s movies, um, you know, Cameron Crowe movies, James Brooks movies, um, Pretty Woman, When Harry Met Sally. Um, these are movies where, like When Harry Met Sally, for example. I'm sure Billy Crystal was given free reign to improvise. Uh, but I'm also sure that that was such a sharply drawn script that there isn't that much room to improvise um, because you're always coming back to what's the intention of the scene. And we felt that we had the goods on this movie, and we felt like, um, you know, I felt like my time was better spent. Of course, we let the actors improvise, um, but my time was better spent balancing that improvisation with visual storytelling and with, you know, calibrating performance to the point where the teams were working as well as they possibly could rather than just trying to find an extra good joke yeah. Now that said as a comedy director um, as a comedy director often those improvisational jokes are like the reason the movie is good versus the reason the movie is bad um, you know you have 10 of them in a movie and it changes the whole film so what we would do on this one it was a little bit more of like a targeted approach we had we had three arm tip writers. And they would all, anywhere we went, whether it be on the street or in an office, would have a folding table set up with three laptops and a printer. Um, And their job would be, between takes, to just type up jokes. And they would type them up in final draft. and I would get little strips of paper that looked like they were written... You know, they look like a script. Um, and so, and then I would read them, review them between takes. And when I liked one, I would give it to the actors. Or in Seth's case, I would just give them all of them. And write them to <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we got so many amazing jokes out of that. And we had such great writers that we also got like good, like they weren't just jokey jokes. They knew what we were going for. So sometimes they were jokes that would, sometimes they weren't even jokes. Sometimes they were just things to say that would like build up the characters more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely went into this one with an eye toward being more judicious um, about that.
1: And, and I think that it should, I feel, I feel like in this one, it's like kind of like the perfect balance. Like some of the jo- like obviously like, you know, Captain Crunch's grinder date and the oh boy lines are hilarious, yeah. but it's like, there's, there's <laughs> such a, yeah. I, which those two, I, I'm going to be quoting those for like the foreseeable future. That was <laughs> absolutely hysterical.
0: So Captain Crunch's grinder date um Is like that. That is like the classic sort of apotow area of a joke that like an onset writer will just destroy. I'll get a hundred versions of Captain Crunches (laughs) crying and it's great. I mean, that's like that. Talk about low hanging fruit, but it's the best kind of low hanging fruit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then oh boy, was so funny. This guy uh, Kurt, who's one of our onset writers. I think he has something about it in his stand-up. Um he he did it also for the big sick. He did he kinda he was in the big sick, but he also did this job. Oh, okay. For the big sick, the on set writer job. Cool. And he came up with that and uh it was just so weird. Like that one is a very strange one because that's like a big swing. Oh <laughs> yeah, that is you know it's gonna work.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and the think, the audience I think ate it all up.
0: <laughs> it was like the last year shooting, we were in Columbia. And I think everyone's
1: like, Yeah, oh, fuck it, let's just try. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, that's yeah. I I think those. I mean, those two. I mean, there's many other jokes in the film, but um, but it's interesting because you can have jokes like that and very like you know funny moments, but something that I've always like appreciated about your work is your ability to cultivate genuine relationships between characters. You know, whether it be like friendships in films like Fifty Fifty and The Night Before, or like in the case of Long Shot, it's a romance. So what do you feel are the key ingredients in making relationships such as these authentic and effective?
0: Well, I mean, okay. So here's what I would say. It's like my personality is that I have a sort of sounds weird to say, but like a sort of romantic personality. The way I look at the world um, is, is I, I, I am a kind of a romantic. Um, mm. And so I think just in my DNA, I just bring that to the table. Like I love, romantic movies, like not just romantic comedies, I just love romantic movies. And so I was just in love with the idea of showing these two people fall in love. And I, you know, I just love the music you can use and the way the world looks when you're falling in love and all this, all this stuff. And then, you know, the other thing is like, I just love these characters. Like I just, (laughs) um, you know, Seth, Seth, I just have loved since I saw him, you know, in 40 year old Virgin Um, and Charlize just you know, I, 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 I admired her as, as an actress. I mean, she's the best actress in the world. And then from day one, when I saw what she was doing with this character, I I just fell in love with the two of them. And so I think that that's hard to fake. Like you can't, I just, so when when you're inspired in that way by two characters and two people, and, and of course, part of the reason I was inspired um, is because we all worked on the script together. And by the time we started shooting, like the moments that, that really um, inspire me We're all in there. You know, like there's mm-hmm. a scene where Seth is just, they, they first hooked up and Seth is just walking on the beach and it's just like, uh, there's like flary, beautiful beach. And it's like, he's just can't believe his luck. And like, I loved shooting that scene. I'm not, I'm not sure it's like the scene in the movie that audiences are gonna remember the most. And I'm not sure how much it does to like, to the general viewing of the movie, good or bad. But to me, a scene like that, um, where I can devote some real estate to really like feeling how psyched this guy is, and to, to reminding myself of how excited I was the first time I kissed my wife, or what you know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds yeah. cheesy, but like these are things. These, I, I think maybe because I am cheesy, this <laughs> gets into the movies, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um. But like that's you know, and then I get to play fucking Frank Ocean covering Moon River behind it, you know. <laughs> um. It's like it's it's just the type of stuff I've always loved in movies, you know. I love. John Kyzak and Ioni Sky in the back of a car with the rain. And like I just love the imagistic, uh, like evocative power of filmmaking to make you feel those things. Yeah. I love it to transport me to, to to see, you know, uh to see Iron Man fly or whatever, and I love it. But more than anything, like I love it to give me a feeling that I felt before but i can feel again you know what i mean yeah absolutely Um,
1: well you mentioned moments like that and i think moments like like seth on the beach those are so important um in getting inside the characters getting their internal emotions without saying too much and you're right it is very beautiful and i think it's moments like that because this is this is over like a a two-hour long movie which is you know you know it's a rarity for comedies but you are able to balance you know nurturing that romance so well with maintaining the audience's attention and I, I'm curious like how are you able to do that because that's not an easy thing
0: well I mean first of all it is about timing things out right it's about yeah. those those 10 jokes those ten, 10 improv jokes that I mentioned earlier having those in the right spot and having music kicking in the right spot it, it's really just about pace um but what it what it's also about is hitting the beats at the appropriate time and I think that you know we were very here's here, the, the thing with working with Seth and Charlize too. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I, I just have more experience with Seth, but right. it's like the thing is never done every step of the way you are writing and rewriting and thinking. I mean, I, I, I've never met anyone who thinks harder and that is like, it's so important to do that because if you don't think hard, you're going to end up working harder mm. because you fuck something up and you're going to end up having to work that much harder to fix it. So it's like, you know, In the script phase, we're looking at pace, too. And then especially in the post-production phase, it's like, you know, we test the movies a lot. Um, We show them all the time. And and I also, like, take an approach where by the end of shooting a movie, like, by the first cut, I have, like, this healthy animosity toward the movie (laughs) that's so, (laughs) so great that... I do not. I, it's the opposite for me of like falling in love with stuff. I like hate everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty open to cutting stuff. And I'm pretty open to trying stuff. Um, of course, like, like any other filmmaker, there's stuff I fall in love with that I'm reluctant to cut and it takes me a while to see what's, you know, that, that it's the right cut sure. or, or, you know, or I spike for it and it isn't the right cut. But, um, but I think being really rigorous and kind of uh, brutal, in the editorial process is, is, is really important because like the first cut of this movie was four and a half hours long.
1: Oh my God. Um,
0: and yeah, 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 yeah. And it was, <laughs> you know, it's no, no movie can be good at four and a half hours long and, and there's, you know, there's no pace. It's just this kind of mushy thing. Sure. Um, but by now I've done it enough. And I've done this type of movie enough to know where it's going and, and how to methodically get there. And, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But but it, but it as long as you trust the process and you keep showing and you keep showing, you keep whittling it down. You know, I think probably when I saw the four and a half hour version of the movie, I was like, there's no way this is going to be less than two and a half hours. But like mm. a comedy can't be two and a half hours. No, yeah that's,
1: yeah, that's kind of um, crazy.
0: So we just kept doing it. We just kept um, methodically working toward where we want it to be. And, um, and I think that, you know, th- those, those guiding lights of like heart and, um, heart and character being the priority in the editorial process were really important. And so, you know, we left a lot of jokes on the table, um, in this movie, probably more jokes than I, than I ever have. Um, but that's because they're not, you know, the, the joke is not the currency in this movie that it is, for me in other movies, because we have so much other stuff we can lean on. Mm -hmm. And when you have a joke that's just funny, but not related to character um, or pushing the story forward, it, it really has to go or it has to be a really good joke.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely, now, I, and I totally understand, you know, having to make cuts like that. But like you said, sacrificing the joke to give the film heart, I think paid off in the long run. Um, I, I have to ask about casting Andy Serkis as the the, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Steve yeah, Bannock yeah, Totally, where did that come about? Whose idea was that? And I just just if you could discuss that whole process, I mean, that is that to me was just a it was like Tom Cruise and Tropic Thunder to me.
0: We <laughs> um so. So Andy was um, was James Weaver's idea. James Weaver is the third Point Grey, uh, the third, I guess, co I don't know how what his title is, but he runs Point Grey with Seth and Evan, um, and he is a brilliant producer um, and is like an, an integral part of the team and also is probably, you know, he's been championing this movie for such a long time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he is really the, the real reason this movie got made. And so... He suggested circus and like, I know, I, I mean, I know Andy as a monkey and I know Andy <laughs> as like mostly just as a monkey, I guess. And then like, I mean, I know, and, and then I think I had just seen, I guess I'd seen him in, was he in the second Avengers? And I think I, and I really loved what he was doing in Black Panther. I just thought he was so fun and funny. And we had heard, you know, Seth kind of knew him socially a little bit. I think maybe they have the same manager, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was like it, it, it just seemed like a good fit. Because a lot of times on these movies, also you're looking for the best actor, but you also it's such a the the you know making a comedy is is such a social interaction as well
2: mm-hmm. that you also
0: want someone who's going to be a good cultural fit. Um, and that's a really important thing too because you can get so much more. Um, out of the movie if people are getting along and everyone's vibing mm-hmm. um so that's like part of my casting process as well is to kind of gauge that so that was it but here's the thing about circus we had no idea he was going to do that fucking makeup <laughs> like <laughs> yeah so we thought we were just getting Andy circus and then and then and then one day i i was on set and i'd heard they were doing a makeup test for andy and i went and Um, there was this guy who just looked like this old, like kind of pickled white dude with a lot of liver spots and a big red alcoholic nose. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was like, who's that guy? He was standing in front of the camera and sure enough, it was Andy and he looked amazing. The the Montreal makeup, uh, and prospects who did an amazing job. And so, um, yeah. And so that was my first meeting with him the first time I'd ever met him and since that point uh I you know throughout the whole shoot I only saw him in makeup until the very last night uh where we shot till like one in the morning and then you know we're shooting in Montreal so they have this wonderful French restaurant that's open until like five nice and we went out and we had a glass of wine together he came in he was getting out of his makeup and he came in and I was like oh that's yeah totally that's what you look like <laughs> I had not ever met him that was the only time I've ever met the real dude yeah um so it was very funny. And, and, and I mean, I just thought like, what an amazing guy to just, and by the way, just the, the nicest guy and the most wonderful actor, uh-huh. but to, to come in and, you know, you have one week on a movie and uh, to decide that, that you're going to sit in a makeup chair, you, you have to, you know, he has to get up at midnight to get there um, for like a 7am call to be ready. Gosh. Um, And I was like, why? <laughs> why, why are you doing this? And I think it's just like it's 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 that's what makes it fun for him, and that's how partially how he accesses these characters, and he says he sleeps, he says he just sleeps in the chair,
1: yeah. Oh, that's, so. that's insane. I mean, you know, it's so funny just cause like someone, you're right. You don't really know what he looks like because I mean, unless you've just like seen him out and about, but like you don't, because he's always playing these characters hidden either in, you know, motion capture or in this case, prosthetics. And so he's like, he's really quite the chameleon. So that was a, I, I, I love that. I love that little, that little bit there. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, no, no. And of by course.
0: the way, he's been directed by, when you talk about, to him about other directors he's been directed by, uh-huh. I mean... He had a day. He said where he went to ILM and was directed by Peter Jackson, Steven Spielberg, and James Cameron in the same fucking day. Oh my god! Because like he was being, you know, he was probably attached to hundred. He was in a green thing attached to a hundred things. But right. he's he's one of one of our. We're so lucky to have him in the movie because when you look at his career, you know, and he's such a chameleon, and quite quite often it's 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 a CG version of him. But he's just worked with. He's he's had iconic performances in some of the most amazing movies.
1: Yeah, so he's cool. for sure. Well, speaking of casting, though, um, you know, Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron as romantic partners—like at first glance, it seems very unlikely. But in execution, it's kind of a stroke of genius. So, like, was that a decision that was there from the get-go, or did it just kind of happen through like the
0: casting process? I mean, they were both on board. You know, Seth. By the time I got to it, they were both on board. But I mean. I know that Seth was on first, and I know um, that it was very important to Seth. Like he, it, The only reason he made this movie is because Charlize said yes to
2: it. Mm. And I
0: think that it is an unlikely pairing, but I don't think any of us ever lacked faith or confidence in it. It never worried any of us because she, her persona to me is reflective of exactly the type of movie we wanted to make. We wanted it to be... Uh, we wanted to be taken seriously. We wanted to feel like it was of quality. And yet we wanted it to be fun. And we knew all that was part of who she was. And, you know, even though she's basically known for being a very dramatic actor, when you meet her, you immediately understand that she's a funny human being and uh, a smart, thoughtful light-hearted person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was never anything that was a concern. In fact, I think it was something that really excited all of us because we felt like we had these two kind of secret weapons, and the main secret weapon was their kind of the juxtaposition of the two of them and the chemistry between the two of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like you said, she, she just she's so she's so naturally comedic in the film um and and i personally had never seen her you know do comedy like that before so it was really um refreshing and and she it just she just so easily fit into it so that that was a that was a very pleasant surprise for me but
0: I loved her in young adult and that to me even though that's obviously a very different tone yeah that to me showed her bravery and 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 it showed her bravery and her comedic timing but most importantly it showed her bravery and that's like very very important um she's willing to go out of her comfort zone in fact she craves it anything else to her is boring Mm. um and I think that's why she's so great yeah
1: no I absolutely but anyways kind of going off of that comedy you know you you do something that's that's kind of tricky at least I would imagine is tricky because you mentioned it's it's a very heartfelt um uh movie about this romance, but it like it's insanely funny and it manages to deliver a consistent level of comedy the entire way through, even though you you know you mentioned leaving some jokes on the cutting room floor so i i mean do you is is was that a challenge for you or did it just kind of come naturally
0: um as far as as far as making it funny well I mean when you have sat there. And you're not so worried about that. Um, and, uh, you know, Seth is really, that is the thing. Look, I'm funny. And, and, and without Seth, I would probably make a relatively funny movie. But he is the one who sort of has honed that and understands that. And that's why we work so well together. Right. Is it's not necessarily a, a, an, an exact split. But like I'm always mostly concerned with the story and the heart, and he's always mostly concerned with the comedy. Of course, we understand that we need all of it. Um, but but those are sort of the lanes we each pick. So um, you know, I think we we definitely knew we needed it to be funny. We definitely wrote a lot of funny stuff into the script, and then we really kind of stacked the deck by having these writers on set. And, you know, look, this is the first movie Seth has made as a lead in a very, very long time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we wanted to just knock it out of the park. Um, we, we all had a lot riding on it. So we all devoted a lot of firepower to making sure it was as funny as possible and as heartfelt as possible. Yeah. Um, and we felt, you know, that first day when we all walked onto set, we all felt confident that we were in a good place and we could just proceed to do our jobs and make it great.
1: Yeah, for sure. But like kind of like maintaining that like through, throughout the entire runtime, like how do you, cause you, you know, there, there used to be a trope where comedies, you know, they would start off really funny and then they kind of like dip in and then they get funny at the end. You guys, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you, you, you spread the jokes out so well so that it really maintains that level. Is that just, are you, are you planning that they out? Just or just
0: dumb luck. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. I, it, it's not like, it, it's not like the, you know, e- I think even though the editorial process of, of, of creating jokes is is basically math. Um, I think that that is just, I think the reason you felt that is because a lot of the time the story is carrying the joke. And I think that was something that was really revelatory for us was that these jokes were not just like one-offs. Like a lot of the jokes that play really well are jokes that are story jokes. Mm -hmm. They're jokes like, you know, there's a joke when they're in the helicopter and like all the characters are kind of looking at each other and they all know now that Seth and Charlize's characters are hooking up. Um, and it's a joke that gets a laugh, which you would never think mm-hmm. um, in this modern era of comedy, that type of joke would get a laugh. But it's because of the story. And, you know, when Seth is like called to meet the secretary of State for the first time, that gets a laugh. And that's yeah. not even because of anything we're doing. That's because of the charged nature of the story. So I think it's a credit to the screenwriters that the situations had enough kind of conflict and tension that the story could carry the jokes. Yeah, because um, if it's just if it's just jokes, I mean, I just think we had a bunch of different, like, we had a very a very palette of jokes that we could choose from, and that's not necessarily something a lot of comedies do right now. Mm-hmm. I think you know, for me, when I saw Game Night, like, I don't know when it came out, like a year ago, maybe no two years ago.
1: Uh, I, th- I think it was um, a year
0: ago. Or I something, think I saw. Yeah, it while, yeah I saw it while we were editing this, and I just like I thought that was like a real. Um, step forward for, for modern comedy.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um,
0: so I just, I think that that set a bar that we were trying to meet as far as like the quality of jokes, the density of jokes and the strength of the story and the strength of the the visual storytelling which I thought those guys did a really great job with Um, I don't know that's neither here nor there but that's just how I felt no for
1: sure yeah and I I think it kind of you know similar to Game Night it had that effect where the where the comedy was consistent yet it did have the heart which which helps this film as along with Game Night kind of like it elevates it to that next level for sure.
2: Cool. Yeah, That's no, cool. for sure. But
1: uh, so two very quick questions because I know you've got your time is valuable. I really yes, appreciate Seth. you talking to me for as long as you have. But the first one, the jacket. Of Where did that jacket originate from? Yes. It was it just hiding in someone's like garage or something? Did Seth just randomly bring it on to Set or
0: mm-hmm. Okay, so like this is why Seth is so brilliant and it actually is not, so, like, it just makes, it makes no sense. It's yeah. just a weird, dumb choice that he made. But for some reason, it's just, he's, like, he's got this savant-like intuition about things. Like, when we started, we first started uh doing a fitting for him, like, you know, between myself and our costume designer, Mary Boat, who's, like, amazing, um, who did Crazy Rich Asians, and it's just, and she's an incredible costume designer. But we, like, kind of naturally went toward cardigans and button-ups and like stuff that you've seen um stuff that you've seen journalists wear um in in the past and i think stuff that you know i think seth had worn that type of stuff in the interview and so was immediately like didn't want to repeat himself Mm -hmm. um so it sort of forced him into making a different decision but he had this notion of this guy as a sustained adolescent so that's you know and, and that's why i think he went with these kind of windbreakers that make him look like he's you know, I don't know, in an 80s breakdancing group or something. <laughs> and like, but then at some point I overheard him say, and maybe it's says me, that he modeled the character's look on me. Which was simultaneously, <laughs> which is like, which is like cool, but also incredibly insulting. So, um, I've stepped up my fashion game. I no longer, I didn't, I never wore those windbreakers, but I do, uh, I do, I have been accused of dressing like a 12 year old in the past. So, um, but anyway, yeah, that was his call, and it came from a very character-driven place, but it also just came from a place of, like, wanting to do something weird.
1: That um, is, oh, my and, God.
0: And,
1: uh... Yeah. And- <laughs> that, that's hilarious. I mean, like, I, you know, you're right. It does fit the character. Like, he's kind of like a rogue journalist uh, out doing, you know, we meet him in the beginning. He's, like, infiltrating the, the neo-Nazis and stuff. So it's, it, you're right, it does fit the character, but it also, um, that that's, that's absolutely hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: um so final question for you uh boys to men yeah, played a key role in yeah. bringing you know charlotte and fred together what inspired yeah. that decision to incorporate them into the film were there other artists that you were toying around with getting
0: um you know it, like i have done this a couple times now like we were lucky up that miley cyrus um in the night before and mm-hmm. it always starts with like there's there's a you know there's a there's a party and you need someone big so it it, it it's you never want to go all in on someone because chances are you're not gonna get them or or you know whatever. So um, so with boys to men, we definitely wanted it to be someone um, we probably had a list of a few people, not many, and we wanted it to be someone who um, was instrumental when these guys uh, were young. Um, because that's so much of what the movie's about is like getting back in touch with your young self, your idealistic self, the person you were before, um, before, you know, the world kind of forced you into compromises or pragmatism or whatever. Um, so we really wanted it to connect back to their youth. And I think we had heard that, I think Boyzman was probably the first person we, we we went after and we had heard that they would be interested. Um, and when I heard that, I just flipped out because I am a huge voice man fan, <laughs> not just voice Men, but ABC, BBD, the whole East Coast family. Is oh, really. sure, yeah. And like my first concert ever was Bobby Brown. So I'm like, I'm just like, I love this era of, of music. Nice. So for me, it was like a dream come true. And I mean, they were just so fun and incredible. And like they have so many hits, it's insane. Yeah. Um, And the fact that we got them to do two songs in a row which you don't often see in a movie. I really like movies where the artist gets to do two songs. Mm -hmm. Like at at the beginning of Ali, Sam Cooke does two songs. It's just like, you're just like telling the audience, like, if you like this, there's more of it. Look, (laughs) we're giving, you know, we really care about you having a really good time. Mm -hmm. And so we got to watch them perform um, Motown Philly and It's So Hard to Think About It yesterday. And like, they probably did it at 4 a.m. on a Friday and everyone was at the end of the day and everyone was exhausted, but it was magical um and you know uh it's really hard not to be moved by not just the song but the fact that as a filmmaker i get to watch these guys who when i was 12 years old i bought their cd and i wore it out and i loved these songs and i get to watch them now on a set of a movie i'm directing uh it's just pretty cool it's one of those like you know it's one of those moments where you're like uh, pretty
1: nice moment. I I can't even imagine. That must have been super surreal. And I thought it was even you know even better when you brought him out uh, at the premiere of the film for that surprise concert. That was uh that was a blast. It was a really good time. So that was incredible. Yeah, I can't. I've never seen energy in a screening like that before. It was unbelievable.
0: <laughs> I was pretty energetic. I was fucking stoked. Yeah, yeah. I believe it. I was yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Awesome. But uh, listen, thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time. It was a pleasure thank talking you, to man, you. Thank you,
0: man. And thank you so much for your for your kind words about the movie. And I, I should say, I really like your website. I go to it all the time.
1: Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. I'll, I'll be sure to pass that along to my editor as well. Thanks, dude. Awesome. Well, right, have a great one, man. to you. Yeah, yeah. Great talking to you. All right. You too, man. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Jonathan Levine. It was a ton of fun, and hopefully you all got something out of it as well. Don't forget, Long Shot opens in theaters May 3rd and is one of the funniest films I've seen in quite some time. I honestly can't recommend it enough. You can check out my full review of it over at the playlist. And lastly, be sure to subscribe to this podcast feed over on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, take care.